That doesn't work for me. I don't want to work for a guy like that. That's fine. There's 17,000 other people you can work for. We get up early. We start our day early. We work late. And we're savages when it comes to that schedule. If this man is calling you at 4.30 in the morning, you're going to be very, very rich. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Benstock, general manager of Paragon Honda, the number one Honda and Acura dealership in the world. We discuss his career-long journey to $1 billion in sales, the wild success of his 24-hour service center, how he mentors and develops his key employees into car sales savages, being mentored by Jack Welch, if you don't know the name, Google it, and much more. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Well, before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Cars Commerce, the platform to simplify everything about buying and selling cars, including the quote-unquote follow-up. Let me explain. Dealers, fast and effective follow-up is crucial for converting leads into customers. But here's the problem. 40% of shoppers report that they are not getting timely or helpful responses from dealerships. This is a huge problem because your own team could be leaving four out of every 10 sales opportunities on the table. Cars Commerce makes it simple to measure and improve your follow-up performance. A cars.com experience report tracks the percentage of leads your team is responding to and how customers rate those responses. While Dealer Inspire's retailing technology enables your team to quickly text follow-ups with personalized financing options to make the most out of every opportunity. To learn more about how you can measure and improve your team's follow-up performance, go to carscommerce.inc/experience or click the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by AutoFi. Most digital retail platforms are limited in their capabilities and fall short on empowering dealers to convert shoppers into buyers while protecting profitability. Autify delivers done deals by empowering your dealership with the technology to land customers on the right vehicle and deal. From payment configuration, F&I product selection, credit, and real-time lender offers, plus the back-end selling tools to help close the deal. This accelerates the deal no matter where the customer is, on the dealer's website, over the phone, or in the showroom, and translates to a faster sale with better customer experience and higher profits. In fact, the most engaged dealers on Autify see $411 more backend PVR versus non-Autify deals. Go to autify.com slash CDG to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. That's autofy.com slash CDG and start working with done deals today. Lastly, people ask me all the time, CDG, can you help me fill an open role in my company? Well, now I can. I'm excited to announce my new industry job board. I've built this job board so that employers in the auto industry can take advantage of my network and distribution. Your company needs roles filled and I have access to talent. It's a win-win situation. This job board is for anyone in automotive, vendors, dealers, lenders, manufacturers, auto tech, you get the point. The best part is that posting roles is 100% free. Over 50 companies have already posted open roles, including Lithia Motors, Recurrent, Credit Acceptance, Cars Commerce, Shift Digital, and over 20 dealer groups. Add your open roles today by visiting my website at dealershipguide.com and clicking on industry job board or visit the link in the show notes below. Brian, welcome officially to the CDG podcast. It is great to be here. I am a fan, so I, I'm like a little starstruck. So it's it's great to My be man. here with you, <laughs> dude. I I tweeted about you and Paragon like a year ago. Do you remember that? A, a big deal after NADA 2023. Yeah, we came we came out strong last year. I forget how. I mean, someone sent it to me from NADA. I was there actually, but someone sent me like, hey. You you deliver you shared some numbers about you know deliveries of cars, you know, service deliveries, right? You pick up and drop off cars in New York, and just you know how it's impacted your bottom line and numbers. And the post went viral. It yeah, like a million and a half impressions. Yeah, some somebody called bullshit on us, and it, you know it was it was actually true. You know we um 
since 2017, we were doing pickup and delivery. And I think we, we had picked up uh, nearly 200,000 cars and generated $53 million in gross profit. And someone said, that's impossible. And they started doing the math and, you know, they, they couldn't get their head around it. But, you know, it's, it's actually factual. And, you know, we started doing it long before COVID. You know, there was a dealership in Manhattan that wasn't there. They went out of business, a Honda dealership. And we had to figure out how to solve for X. We came up with several terrible ideas. How to, you know, I was going to have a truck go in and pick up cars from a, a garage and, you know, ask the customers to drop the cars off at the garage. Well, that was a terrible idea. And we thought of, you know, another way that we were going to go pick up the cars from the old location doing it one at a time. Well, that, that was terrible. Then we were going to try and incentivize the customers to come to the dealership. And, you know, it took 45 minutes to get from Manhattan to the dealership and then 45 minutes to have an oil change and 45 minutes to get back. That was terrible. And then we just thought, you know, hey, what, what, what if we, you know, put the dealership on the phone and just picked up the customer's car and serviced it overnight while they were sleeping and brought it back to them? And, and that idea seemed to be a, a home run. I love to hear it. Brian, take us back. I want to start way, way back. I don't want to know anything yet about auto business. I want to know, who is Brian Benstock? Why did I hear your name when I was a small used car dealer in, in Philly and then growing an online e-commerce startup? I heard your name multiple times. I had no nothing to do with you, right? Like, who, who are you? Who is Brian Benstock? I started selling cars in a little place called PS Honda in Manhasset, Long Island. I started selling Hondas, I was told. If you're going to sell cars, you got to work for Paul Singer. And if you're going to sell cars, you got to sell Honda. And I started working for Paul Singer on May the 10th, 1982. May the 10th, 1982. Prime interest rates were 18%, which means we were lending out money at 19%. And during my job interview with Nancy Phillips, who's still in the business and is a wonderful dealer broker, she asked me, how do you feel about charging customers 18, 19%. I was 21 years old. I didn't know any different. I said, no problem. And of course I had a motorcycle loan. I was paying 23%. So I thought that was a bargain. And you know, it was a great time for me to get started in the industry. I had excellent management. She provided incredible leadership. And I, I took the job in May uh, until something better came along. My, my dad being a really good dad said, uh, you can't work in this day. One day, if you're not going to college without a job, and I wasn't sure if I was going to go back to college. So I, I got a job in the car business till something better came along. And it's, uh, what is it, 40, 40 some odd years later and nothing better came along. I, I found I found some real great opportunities in the car business. Classic car guy. I love it. So when you say your dad, right, was your family an entrepreneurial family? Were they in the car business? My dad sold cars. My, my, my dad, in fact, at the time sold cars for Paul Singer, worked at a Cadillac dealership for Paul Singer. He was a manager in the organization and uh, he didn't get me the job, but he got me an interview. And, you know, I was sweating bullets applying for the job with, with Nancy. A job at a Honda dealership was a pretty special job even back in 1982. And I thought, you know, really I'd take the job for the summer and see how it went. And I, I, I thought the, the industry was interesting. I saw a couple guys that were supporting families selling cars. And I remember, you know, the guys there, yeah, they were professionals. They dressed like professionals. And I'm living in my parents' basement apartment. And I'm saying to myself, wait a second, if this guy can support a house and a car and kids, and I'm a guy living in the basement, I can do pretty good. And I remember that first half year, I made a decent living. I made a very decent living between May and the end of the year. And I, I decided to get serious about the business about a year or so into the business. I mean, I, I was somewhat serious, but I got real serious after Paul Singer and John Rosati sent us to a meeting with a guy named Joe Girard. 
Yeah, we saw Joe Girard speak, and Joe Girard spoke about being the number one salesperson in the world. He was in the Guinness Book of Records, selling six cars a day. I couldn't get my head around that. And then and he, he told this wonderful story about, you know, a high school reunion, getting back to high school and running into this guy. And the, the, the guy was a doctor. I said, Joe, wh- how are you doing? He said, I'm doing pretty good. And he goes, what do you do for a living? He goes, I sell cars. And he said, the guy looked at him like someone put a turd under his nose. He goes, you sell cars? And, and he goes, yeah, I sell cars. And he goes, uh, I'm a roller Chevrolet. What do you do? And the guy said, well, I'm a doctor. And he goes, I gave him that look right back. I, I gave him the look. I went, oh, you, you're a doctor? Oh, the blood and everything else. And he goes, Joe Gerard, I made $400,000 last year. And Joe Gerard famously tells him, about, he goes, I made 600000 last year. And I didn't get any blood. I didn't lose a single patient. And that, now I'm a, there's a 22 or 23-year-old me sitting there saying, wait, he made $600,000 selling cars. And, and, you know, it's not like basketball where you've got to be you know, six foot seven or seven foot tall. You know, or it's not like or, or football where you've got to be able to, you know, have this physical strength. I, it, it, I figured, gosh, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, and, and so it was really I, Mr. Rosati and Mr. Singer do not know the value that they got out of me from that one meeting, whatever they paid for that, they got an exponential return because I was the, the puppy dog sitting there in that room, eating up every word that Joe Gerard said. Unbelievable. Well, tell me more about your rise in the industry. You said 1982. I mean, I wasn't even, I, was, I mean, shit, my parents weren't even married back then. So, <laughs> what was the car business like, right? What was it like back then? How is it different from what it is today? You know, I, I think we I got to see the birth of a lot of different changes in the business. There wasn't a lot of leasing back then. In fact, there was really no captive leasing back then. And I think as part of my career has been associated with innovation. And I, I had the pleasure and the blessing to be around a lot of people that gave me great insights. I had a gentleman that worked for me that was involved in leasing very, very early in the game, a gentleman who's long since passed, but Norman Lagow, who taught me the leasing business in the early 80s. And I think that became a a real cornerstone of my business well before anybody else was leasing. We were leasing more cars disproportionately to anybody else before American Honda had a lease. He, in fact, had written the manufacturer's Hanover lease way back in the day. We figured out leasing, and it was a way for us to really offer value for our customers. And, you know, we were told when I came to Queens, nobody wants to lease cars. People here don't own their houses, so they only want to own their cars. And, you know, when I came here, we, we really tested that. And sure enough, of course, the people of Queens wanted to own, I mean, lease a car to drive more car for less money. And we were able to be pretty uh, far out ahead of everybody else in the leasing game. And dare I say, trade cycle management. You know, I met uh, Sean Wolfington and Sean's uncle Eustace was at the forefront of half a car with Ford. And that was another lucky break for me to meet a family like the Wolfingtons and to be involved in trade cycle management. And trade cycle management became a cornerstone of, of what we do and what I do at Paragon. It's really uh, new to you every two. And, and understanding that the, the smaller the trade cycle, the more frequency you could have, the more frequency you have is a greater way to increase geometrically your ability to do business. And, and you know, that led us to being able to get those customers back in for, for used cars and a great way to manufacture used cars. So, you know, it, it, it was really a great, it's been a great education that I've had by being around really spectacular people. And I I think like a snowball, as I roll, I pick up a lot of these ideas and insights and they've really helped me and helped us as time has gone by. I want to get a little bit more personal. 
You know, you've been in the car business 42 years. The first thing that comes to mind for me is lots of late nights. I mean, this is retail business, right? It's, it takes a lot. Tell us a little bit about your family life and how has it been growing a family while also growing what has become the number one Acura and Honda dealership in the world? You know, what? Jack Welsh, uh, who's a mentor of mine and, and, and became a friend, you know, I mean, I'm blessed again to be live in New York City and have access to some people. I, dare I say, I, I met him a number of times and I had dinner with him and his wife, Susie, a couple of times. And the, you know, he said famously, there's no such thing as life choices. I mean, these life choices have consequences. And people ask me about life balance, uh, work-life balance. There are no such things as work-life balances or life choices, and those choices have consequences. I'm blessed to have married a great woman, and she understood from day one. I I, I worked very long hours. You know, six days a week was common. Twelve-hour days was common uh, back in the day. In fact, seven days a week was common for me for many years of my career. My, my boss, Paul Singer, had a work ethic that I've never seen in anybody. He worked seven days a week, and I you know I tried to work at that pace with him for much of my career. And I've changed that these days. These days, I'm six days a week. These days, more like eight to 10 hours a day, not the 12 to 14 hours a day. As I've changed the choices that I'm making now, I'm trying to see my kids grow up a little bit. But in the early days, like you know, rocket ship, when it's coming up off the ground, you've got to put a lot of effort into that career. And I, and I see young young people starting out today and they want all the things. They want the toys, they want the cars, they want the house, the boats, and all those things, but they're not willing to make the sacrifices. And I, you know, I, I just don't think you can have both. And I, I will tell you, I missed many a wedding, I missed many a party, I missed many a trip in my life, and I don't regret a darn thing because those were the choices that I made. And thankfully, you know, I promised my wife, I said, later on in life, we'll be able to, we'll be able to enjoy ourselves. Later in life, I promise you, you know, thankfully, we are able to take a little bit of time that we weren't able to take back then. But this business, like you said, it's a retail business. Uh, it's a business that goes on 24 hours a day. And my my guys will tell you, the phone calls, the text messages started about 4.30 in the morning, and they don't stop until about 11 o'clock at night. If you work for me, that's normal. Now, you can say, hey, hey, that doesn't work for me. I don't want to work for a guy like that. That's fine. There's 17,000 other people you can work for. We get up early, we start our day early, we work late. And, and, and we're savages when it comes to that schedule. And, you know, I can tell when my guys wake up because I can. they start to return the text. Some are at 6, some are at 7, some are at 8 o'clock in the morning. But I'm looking at the data first thing in the morning. I'm looking to see where we're at. I'm looking to see, you know, hey, attaboy, we, you know, you, good job. Or, hey, you told me we did this and the data says that. Hey, here's what we need to do. Here's what my list is. And, and, and shooting out the information. And, you know, I... Again, I, I like to think that we work at a pretty good pace, and I think the numbers show. And last year, we had the privilege to finish top spot in the country. And, you know, I don't take that for granted. There's 1,100 or 1,200 Honda dealerships, and to finish in the top spot, I think it was a pretty special job done by the, the men and women of the company. And we'll get more into that. Tell me more about what is it like working for Brian Benstock? Tell me more about that. Oh, I suck, man. It, it's a grind. It's an absolute grind. My job is to develop people, and that's not an easy job. You know, you, you I think there is a lot of pushing. There's a, I, I think I make, I'm fair, but there are demands. My job is to cause your growth. I've learned that in life that life is constant pain, 
uncertainty, and constant work. And if you try and avoid any of the three, you get more of the three. If you try and avoid pain, if you try and avoid uncertainty, if you try and avoid work, you get more of that. So let's just face that reality. And as you're trying to educate people on that, they look at you like, you know, this guy's a strange dude. You know, life is not pain. Well, yeah, it is, you know, and, and, and there is uncertainty out there. So we try and mitigate that uncertainty by developing skills. We try and mitigate that pain by being prepared. And we, we, we try and work every day, a little bit every day. Because if you don't pull the weeds out of your garden every day, they'll take over the garden, as Jim Rohn says. You, know, you, you got to pull the weeds out every day. And is it a constant, constant grind? No. But if you take your eye off the ball, the market will sneak up on you. The competitors will sneak up on you. And, and they will take your garden. And so I think we've got to prepare. You've got to make time for health. You've got to make time for skill sets. You've got to make time for your family. If you don't make time for these things, you'll find that decay will set in and they will be taken away from you. Do you think that's practical for someone starting out in the car business or early on in their career? I mean, I think even like my first half or five years in a car business, and I say that at the minimum, it's 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 a grind. I mean, you got to be there. You got to put in the time. You got to you know got to put in the grind. And the reality is, you know, to do anything great, there is no such thing as balance. If you ask me, I mean, people even something as simple as car dealership guy, which is the most recent idea that came to life. It's I mean, just putting thinking through till now even the, the amount of time on a daily basis to put something to that. I mean, doing things that you know quote unquote don't scale. Right? There is no such thing as balance. It's more it's more so. I view it at least, and in general, I view life as balancing between periods in your life. Can't balance be, hey, I'm going to dedicate this 15 years so that I can have a, a better 15 years later. That can be balanced. I'm going to be all in now, right? I'm going to go dark for six months so that I can be in a really special place. How many people dedicate a month to, hey, you know what? I'm not going to the bar. I'm not going to the club. I'm not going to uh, I'm going to give up drinking. I'm going to give. I'm going to dedicate this to to educating myself on, on a specific craft or a skill set. What does 100% of you look like? Has anybody ever seen 100% of you? And wouldn't that be amazing to to get 100% of you towards some driven goal, whether that be a relationship, a job, a career, a craft, anything? And, and what could it be if we could harness that for just a short period of time? We're so freaking distracted all the time. And, and they say it takes about 10,000 hours to get mastery at something. And, and 10,000 hours takes 10,000 hours. So it's, it's, it's over. It's that monotony of doing something over a long period of time and just developing that skill. You know, I, I try and teach the guys here, if you read 15 pages a day in a book that would take you and improve your skills in a given direction, you could be an expert in that field. And you can make tens and twenty, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars if you just read 10 or 15 pages, absorb those pages, not necessarily listening to it, but reading and understanding them. And, and if you, you ask somebody in a sales meeting, hey, how many of you have read a book about selling? And, and that number, that number is shockingly low. If, if you get people to be honest and you say, well, how many have read two? How many have read 10? How many have read 15? And, and I've got, you know, I, I don't know, I, I absorb, I eat I books. I mean, I, I, I read a lot. I'm a voracious reader. And I was a terrible student at school. But, you know, my, my that boss of mine, Nancy Phillips, told me the, the solution to any problem you've got starts with the turning of a page. 
And you know, I sort of wrote that down in the back of my head and started, you know, reading reading books. And isn't it, you know, she isn't it a blessing that by getting up in the morning and reading every day, my oldest daughter, one of my, my second oldest daughter, Trinity, sort of watching me and getting up in the morning. And she'd get up early in the morning and she'd grab a cup of coffee. She'd go and she'd start reading. And she, I don't know what she's reading and and she's reading and she's reading and she's reading. And she became a, a, a an exceptional student, which I was not, as I said, when I went to school. And uh, she finished one of the tops in her class in a very high high school. And last year she got accepted into Cambridge University in England, you know, which is one of the top schools in the world. And I'm proud to say she reads about 90 books a year. And she's not reading love novels. She's reading pretty intense books. So, you know, those, those habits can change people's lives. And, and I don't know where her journey will take her, but I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting spot. And so, you know, the, the people that are around me at the dealership that understand that this stuff can really have an impact on your life, I think they're, hopefully they're better off for it. Because uh, I, I think our job as a leader, as mentors, is to develop people. And that, that's the most rewarding part of what he, Here's my question. You, you seem... You seem like an intensely focused person, right? I speak with a lot of people on a weekly basis, you know, different walks of life. You seem someone who's intensely focused. What got you to this point? Was it someone? Was it something? Why? Why? I, I have had a series of great mentors. You know, the, uh, the office that I'm in now was Paul Singer's office. And he, I, I worked for him. I, I don't know how spiritual you are, and I won't get into that, but I started working for him on May 10th, 1982. He died on May the 10th. You know, and there are no coincidences. He died on May the 10th, 2006. And so I worked for him, uh, I guess it's uh, 24 years to the day. He was an intense worker. I still work for him, you know, and I think he, he set a blistering pace. He was uh, elegant, eloquent. His nickname was the Silk Hammer. He was soft-spoken, but driven. And I think that I, I feel like I'm carrying on his mission. So I'm mission-driven. And we're not done with the mission now. I'm proud that his wife, who's my partner, has given me the opportunity to continue what we, uh, we started so many years ago. And I think, you know, see, one of the blessings is when you realize there's more there, there. And so how can you be done and you realize, you know, whatever, you deliver a, a thousand cars, let's say, in a month, and you realize, gosh, with all the opportunities we had, we left so many opportunities on the table. And if you look at the number of people that visited your website, and you look at whatever the outcome was, whatever you delivered, and you realize, gosh, look at all the deals, the transactions we missed, and how do we go after that? And that, you, you'll never get there, right? And, and so that's the challenge, is how, how do we get there? How do we serve more people? How do we serve them better, faster, quicker? And I think that's really the mission that we're on. And that's the mission I'm on. Brian, how do you allocate your time today? I'd have to imagine it's it's shifted a lot over the years. And so today, like, what does a week for Brian Benstock look like? Well, I, I would start out with a day. Day starts at four, 4 in the morning. And it's reading from 4 to 5, uh, coffee. And then exercise from generally from 5 to 6.30. Data from 6.30 to 7.30. Uh, shower. And, and whatnot, and breakfast till uh, eight, travel time, which we try and make efficient use of the travel time. And then it's usually work from about nine till, I guess, about seven at dinner time. 
family time and you know we started all over again we have five tasks a day that we're not going to stop the day till we get those five tasks done and that helps to make sure that we're pushing in the right direction i manage uh, six to eight people a day so my my contacts my communication is going to focus heavily on working with those six to eight people every day i think the realization came to me late in life that you can be effective with about six to eight people a day not too many more that doesn't mean you can't communicate with thousands of people in a day but talking about the development of people it's six to eight and i've got my six to eight and sometimes it shifts a little bit but there's six to eight people that i rely on to drive what we're doing and and maybe now with the new store of my planes i've made that eight to ten but i i look up to the roger penske's of the world, my hero. How do you do 170 stores? How the heck do you do it? And he's really, <laughs> he's really good at it, you know, with the, with the Terry Taylors and these other guys, they're just phenomenal icons. And I, I've got a, a very small little world that I operate in and I, learning to scale that is what's next in my career. How do we scale that? Tell us more about your team, right? So you mentioned these six to eight people. Who are they? What do they do? Like, how do you compliment yourself? You know, they've got energy. They've got, you know, the Jack Welsh four E's, right? They've got energy. They've got edge. They've got enthusiasm and they execute. And so we're going to focus on that. And they're youthful. They're not young, but they're youthful. Some of them are young, but they've got to be youthful. They've got to be puppy dogs. They've got to have that zest, that drive to get some stuff done. They're male. They're female, right? They're, they're multilingual. I think they can communicate with the team that we have. They're uh, very, very well-educated in the tasks that they're to perform. That's a, a requirement. They're up early. They are in the 5 a.m. club for sure. Uh, it is not uncommon for any of them to hear from me before 5 o'clock in the morning or at 11 o'clock at night. And Is that a prerequisite for working for I mean, you? No, like, I have you, to wake up at 5? You can't legislate. I don't, I don't think it's legal to legislate that, but certainly... Uh, <laughs> Certainly, it's not it's not uncommon for us to communicate in those hours. You know, I, I think, you, you know, for me, I'm clear at that time of the morning. Man, I'm clear at that time of the morning. There's a stillness that's there. And, and I think it's best to get those ideas out. Again, if I'm breaking any uh, state or federal laws, I apologize. But, uh, you know, they, all they have to do is say, please stop and I'll stop. But they don't. And, and there's nothing better. There's, you know, there's nothing better than to get a text message from somebody. It's a freaking idea. And, and there's somebody that's on fire. Okay, hey, can I call you? Yeah, call me. And, and, and there's a guy whispering because I know his wife is asleep someplace. And hey, da, 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 and, and they give you an idea. And, and I freaking lo- that's that energy, that enthusiasm. That's that puppy dog with the tail wagon. I just figured something out. And okay, okay, think it through. No, I did. And, you know, you love that, right? That, that's Those are the kind of people you want to be around, you know, whether they be partners or they be leaders on a team. That, that's, that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. How do you find yourself sifting for that, right? Like, how do you attract that type of talent? Where did it come from? Yeah, you, know, you know, the last thing I want is a dead fish lying on ice with one eye open, sitting there. Uh, you know, you've got uh, energy attracts. Energy is attractive. We're, we're salesmen. You've got to sell the mission. You've got to sell the vision. What's the vision? I'm the chief vision officer. Here's where we're going. Here's how I see it. Here's how we're going to get there. And if a man or a woman can't sell the vision, you know, they're going to be rendered ineffective. And some guys want to be swagger and cool and laid back. And and they can't get that emotion. They can't charge people. They can't get them excited. And they're, for me, they're going to be less effective. 
And I understand there are cats that really re respond well to that kind of energy. That's just not the energy that works well with me. You know, that may work well in California and certain laid back environments. That's not the environment that I operate best in. And I, I think another Jack Welch, you've got to hire people that laugh at your jokes, right? He tells a story famously that his wife was applying for a job at a big accounting firm and she tripped and she made a joke about, oh, that was an entrance. And the people she was interviewing for just sat there. They didn't, they didn't laugh. And she knew right there, I can't, this is not the kind of place that I would fit in. And I think it's true. You don't have to work for people that are exactly like you, but I think you said it best. You've got to, you know, work for people that laugh at your jokes. You know, there's got to be some sort of a, a similarity uh, of, of kinds. And again, it doesn't mean they have to look like there's, you. There's a word we like to say nowadays. It's the vibes. It's all about the yeah, vibes. <laughs> yeah, vibe is, vibe is the right word. Because if you use the word culture, which I was about to use, culture can, no, no, no. That culture means uh, to some people, everyone's got to look like you. No, that's not it. But the vibe, right? The vibe is is the right word. Like a, a pitching uh, fork. Uh, everyone's in tune. That 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 vibe is a, is a is a good way of putting it. Yeah. So tell me, how long did it take you to become a partner at your store? How many years was that? It seemed like forever, but it was the right time. It came about somewhere in late nineties, ninety seven or so. So it wasn't that long. Fifteen years, sixteen, seventeen years. Do you think that for people listening to this, for any up and comers, do you think that opportunity still exists out there? Yeah, it does. But you've got to be patient, and, and it, you. You know, it takes plus or minus nine months to develop a baby, and it, it takes a long time. As a a new dealer now, it takes a long time before you develop the trust to make somebody a partner. And I know a lot of dealers that throw out these fake partnerships and they make people partners, but they're not really partners. They can throw you out at any minute. That wasn't the arrangement I had with Mr. Singer. I, I, when, when we became partners, I was a real partner. He pushed a, a basket of checks across the desk and said, you're my partner. I remember quite vividly, the first check that I had to sign was a floor plan check. And it was for about 170,000. I have the check, a copy of the check. And when he left the office, I called the controller and I said, Nick, is the money in the bank account? And he started laughing because of course, I said, because I've never signed a check for this much money. And it was, you know, it was a payoff check for $170,000. And you know, when, when somebody's gonna trust you to sign checks like that. You want to, you want to make sure that you know who you're in bed with. And so, so those that are fighting for that, remember, it's not just a fair weather a relationship. You've got to be there for the good times and for the bad times. And trust me, I've been through all the times with my relationship with the Singer family for the recessions, the floods, the insurance problems, everything that you can go through. And you've got to be standing there, you know, not, not just for the times when the money's coming in, but when you reach those times when you're truly tested. And you, you, you'll know how good your marriage is when you hit the rocks. You'll know how good your attorney is when you've got an impossible case. You'll know how good your doctor is when your doctor's tested in a life or death situation. That's when you know what you're dealing with. And the same thing I think is true in business. You'll know how good your partner is when he or she is truly tested. You know, anybody, you know, can can cheer when the temperature's right and the, the game is going your way. But, you know, do you have faith when your team's down by three touchdowns with five minutes to go in the game? Well, that's when you, you, the real fans are. I want to get into some of the brass tacks here. 
I think we've we've talked a lot about your really impressive background and rise in this industry and just what you've accomplished. And you sell, I mean, over 32 cars a day, 950 cars a month based in New York. Just let's just start high level here, right? How did you get to this stage? And I like tactically, right? What is it like to operate in in your showroom? How do you put out these numbers? You know, first of all, we don't do any fleet. I want to say that. No fleet, no broker business. You know, and a lot of the dealers can't get their head around that. A lot of these Honda dealers with these franchises that are worth millions of dollars prostituted by selling cars to brokers. And they're going to turn their multi-gazillion dollar franchise into a Nissan store. And it's a disgrace. We don't do that. You know, we don't do it. It's belly button to belly button one at a time because I'm not going to prostitute my business by selling cars to a broker. We're going to sell the cars retail. I'm in the retail business, which is why when push comes to shove, our dealership's profitability numbers are staggering and our business grows, you know, and the past three, four, five years, even the stupid dealers, as, as an accounting friend of mine said, made money. But right now, all of a sudden, you see panic because we, we've had a, a little pullback in the market. And, and, I, and I don't mean to say stupid dealers, but even the bad dealers made money. Uh, and now it's, it's a fun time. I had breakfast with a, a dealer this morning. And I said to this, uh, Alan Dubray, he's an accurate dealer, Honda dealer, excellent dealer. I said, Alan, this is a fun time for us because all the other guys are going to be jumping off a bridge. And this is the time when let's go guys, roll up the sleeves, take out the playbook and let, and let's go. And we saw last month an, a dramatic increase in the New York market in, in, in broker business. Guys were panicking and selling off their inventories to, to, to brokers. So when you ask about doing volume of business, we have a, a very healthy database that we can turn to to engage and to enact and to ignite to sell our cars to. We've got, a, a, again, a very healthy trade cycle management that we can, I, I think, look to give them a, pro- a proposal that makes sense for them to upgrade to a brand new car. And when you're selling your cars to the brokers, you, you have no such opportunity. So pardon the the little commercial about the the brokers, but there's this is a, in, in certain markets, Florida and New York, it's it's prolific. And uh, the manufacturers say they don't like it, but they do nothing to stop it. And it's uh, it'll, it'll destroy the OEMs, the manufacturers, the roots of their tree, if they're not careful. You know, whenever we used to have tough sales months, we would always just, you know, say one word, right? Fundamentals. And so I'm curious with you, is it for you like the success? Does it come from focusing on the fundamentals or is there also some, some real nuances to the way you operate? You know, do you ever get away from the fundamentals? I, I don't think so. It's blocking and tackling. And they, uh, a basketball coach went to see uh, Kobe Bryant one day, and he got there real early in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, and he was shocked. This basketball coach was a coach of a either a college team or a high school team, and he said he couldn't believe that Kobe was there doing the most basic of basic drills, you know, standing behind the free throw line and throwing free throws one at a time and then doing the most basic rudimentary drills. And he asked him about it and says, well, where else would you start? It's all the fundamentals, blocking and tackling. Vince Lombardi said you have to be br- brilliant at blocking and tackling. For us, our blocking and tackling would really be a database mining. And when do you stop that? Talking to the customers inside of your database. And that's got to be 12 months a year, 365 days a year. And, and having a communication strategy to talk to the people with the highest statistical probability of doing business with you now 
and in the future. And that's got to be mapped out well in advance. That's not a, a guessing game. That's that's a strategy that you have in place, having the right people employed at the right time to say the right thing to the right customers. And and so we we, we knew about a year ago, I, I wrote an article that Dale Pollack published. And I said, you know, there's a profit coma going on right now. And that coma is going to end. And some people are going to be in deep Sheba because many of the salespeople that we have on our floors today got hired during this profit coma. And they don't know what it's like to have a customer say, no, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. Because the customers were walking in with their wallets and saying, oh, you have the car here, take my wallet. How much over a sticker do you want? Oh, 3,000, okay, I'll pay it. And somehow they think that that's normal. And they thought that that was normal. And all of a sudden customers are saying, no, 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 no. I want a discount. I want 3,000 off. I want 4,000 more for my trade. And we saw some of our younger salespeople struggling. So going back to the basics, the mundane things, the everyday things, the the road to the sale, the opening investigation, selection, demonstration, verification, appraisal, close TO, what's the purpose of the step one? What's the purpose of step two, three, four, and five? You know, and, and the specific order and what the purpose of those that order is. I'm, I'm maybe I'm simple, but you know, if you're going to go through an operation, I want the doctor to follow a set procedure, understanding that there there is a beginning, a middle, and an end. You do clean the area before you make the incision. You don't just wing it. You have to have a specific setup. And I think that the in a sale, the same thing applies, and that goes for an online sale as well as an in-person sale. Mm-hmm. What's your take on online versus in-person? Where do you think the market's headed? Uh, you know, I, I think the both have a, a bright future. I, I, I have no preference. I think the customers should decide what's best for them. Many of us want to touch and feel before we buy, you know, especially in the age of electrification. You know, I think, I think it's nonsense to think that customers want to buy an electric car online. Can you imagine I'm going to buy, and you name the brand, I'm going to buy a brand new electric Toyota. I've never seen it before. I've never sat in it before. To think that I'm going to do 100% of that transaction online and take the leap of faith is, I think, is ridiculous. Toyota, Honda have an excellent reputation, but I want to feel this vehicle. I want to experience it before I pull the trigger. So I think, especially with the 168 new models coming out over the next two years, people are going to want to get behind the wheel. So I, I think the in-store experience still has a lot uh, to be desired. And I think we, we need to change what the store looks like. I think Professor Galloway calls it, the stores need to become a temple to the brand, a temple where you can encourage, touch, feel, start it up. And again, that's the wonderful thing about an EV. You can have that thing fully running inside the showroom so the customer could really, with the exception of driving it, I may not be safe to drive it around the showroom, but you could really get the customer immersed in all aspects of the car, fully lit up like a Christmas tree inside the store, which a lot of dealers are hesitant to do. And then change that experience inside the store to make the uh, the store a temple to the brand and really focus on that customer experience. That somehow, that experience has to be mimicked or replicated online. Isn't it interesting when you buy an Apple product online, that experience somehow matches the experience when you buy an Apple product in the store? Completely different experience, but the, the, the smoothness of the experience, the feel of that is about the same, right? So that's kind of cool. So how do we do that? And we can do that. And the wonderful thing about online experiences, it's transparent. 
So if you see something you like, you can knock it off, right? You can. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. If if Apple does something great, and and by the way, have you ever bought an Apple phone online? It's so analogous to how you can buy a car online, even when it comes to trade-in. So why all these companies are trying to do it themselves? Take a look at what they do. Knock it off, because it's a pretty good it's a pretty good setup there. But I think that to to answer your question, I think there's always going to be a a place for a showroom. Maybe the showroom footprint's going to change. Maybe we don't need the amount of real estate that we had for showroom space. But to have an in-store experience, I think, is is, is going to be very important for the manufacturers going forward. So how's your technology stack adapted to this reality, right? It's clear, you know, you believe in the showroom. What have you done on the tech side in order to meet the demands of just the modern-day consumer? Yeah, I, I think I think technology, I think the dealers have failed with technology. You know, we, we talked about in 2008, we got rid of a lot of headcount with the recession, right? And we tried to, add, and we added a lot of technology, but added all this tech, and then we brought back all of the headcount. So we've got the tech expense, and we've got the headcount. I think, you know, technology should aid people in purchasing and selling. It's got to be a tool. And we're pretty heavily immersed in technology. We think the technology that we use helps us find customers more strategically. I think Aragon was at the forefront of digital. I think that was one of the things that we, um, you know, when it came to people were saying, how do you become the number one certified dealer in the world? We, you know, Dale Pollock and I got together very early in the Empower days before V Auto and Dale showed it to me and it was great. My people refused to use it because it, it made the the men feel less like men. I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to let a computer tell me how to put the right number on a car. And I said, Dale, come back to me when it has an offensive tool, not just defensive. We put the number on the car. Dale came to this very door, this very door in 2007 said, I think I've got something. I think I've got something. And it was the first version of V Auto. And I looked at it and I loved it. And I, I went all in. And I, I always used to joke with Dale, we were the number two certified dealer in the nation. I said, all you did was move us from number two to number one. We went from number two to number one, doubling number two. And we've held that position for Honda and Acura for pretty much unchallenged for about 15 years. And it was really just a tech play. I learned that it's a math problem, that it's not, it's not up to old Sharpie boy's gut. It's really just a math problem. And when we saw it as a math problem, you actually, I'll give you an honest moment. When Dale looked at my inventory in 2007, the average age of a used car at Paragon was 150 days, 150 days. And he said, do you know, but I, and he's telling me my inventory is way upside down. And I said, but Dale, I'm at, and I mentioned the number, like 6,000 a car gross profit. I was really proud. And, and he said, but look, what about- At 150 the, days, at 150 yeah. days average, you were doing $6,000 profit. Right, at a car. And he said, yeah, but, what would happen if you took those cars to the auction? I said, I don't know. He goes, I do. And he gave me a number. He said, you'd probably lose a million dollars. So he said, if you subtract that from what you made, you didn't make what you thought you made. You probably lost a bunch of money. And I, I committed to fixing it. You know, if you identify a problem, what would you do? We fixed it. And since that time, our average age of a car for the past 15 years has been about 21 days. And our, our on a, is that on a, on a used car? Yeah, on a used car, with, with very little exception. It's been about twenty-one days. We corrected the problem, and I said, "I said, isn't it interesting 
a man who's blind gave me insight and taught me how to see my inventory because I wasn't paying attention. You know, I'd just be write down some of the old cars and we'd sell them, write down some of the old cars and sell them. I said, well, rather than write them down, how about just not letting them get old and turning the inventory? And so we, we use technology in, in a pretty special way at that time. We've applied that now to many other uses. You know, we teamed up with Google in, um, I guess it was 2011 or 2012. And so looking at how we could create a frictionless transaction for service, that was in 2014 or 2015, we wanted to create a frictionless transaction and I wanted to do it for selling. I, I had a, an Alexa. Who's, whose idea was this, by the way? I did read about this and I've heard about it. Whose okay, idea so, was this? So I'll tell you what happened. Somebody sent me an Alexa and I didn't know what to do with it. And I, so I, I'm a big coffee fan. And so I said, hey, Alexa, what is Starbucks coffee? And it said, uh, Keurig K-Cups, 24 cups, you know, $34. I said, okay, buy it. What's your code? One, two, three, four. And I forgot about it. The next day, the next day, a box of K-Cups came to the dealership. And I went, holy shit. Holy shit. That was a frictionless transaction. This is terrible. This is terrible. I called somebody else into the office. I go, watch this. And I did it. And the next day, another box. I must have had 15 boxes of coffee in my office, big, big boxes of coffee. And I had a, a, an executive from Honda. I said, look at this. And now I'm collecting the boxes. And I realized that they were sourced from all different places. And so it appeared that Amazon was going to, whoever could fill the order first and best would get the order. And the price was the same. So they were agnostic of who filled the order. So I went to, I met up with the people at Google and I was speaking before the audience at Google. And I said to Google, what's the number one search engine? There's all these young kids. And I say pimple faced kids. They're all young. I'm old. They're all young. They all had their Apple computers open. And I said, what's the number one search engine? They went, Google. And I said, what's the number two search engine? They went, YouTube. And I said, you're all real proud of that. And that's great. I'm a retailer. What's the number one search engine for retail? And they go, Google. And I go, no, it's Amazon. It's Amazon. And I, I showed them this chart. And I said, it's Amazon. Google brings the customer to the product. Amazon brings a product to the customer. And, and so Amazon beats you in retail. And uh, afterwards, a woman named Joanne Sheehan from Google said, hey, and she had an Irish accent. And she said, why don't we work on something together? Why don't we see how we can deliver products to customers using Google? And I said, great, I'd love to deliver cars. And she said, no, 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 no. You can't deliver cars. You got to start out what we call the LCD, the lowest common denominator in that service. I said, no, no I, I want to deliver cars. And she goes, no, LCD, lowest common denominator. We're going to go wide, and then we're going to go tall. We're going to go wide, the largest base, we go tall. And that's where, where it started, which was how do we deliver a voice technology, frictionless technology where someone can use Google and say, hey, Google, talk to Paragon Honda. And without them having to touch or swipe, we could arrange for someone to pick up their car, have it brought to the dealership service and brought back to the house. And, you know, a year, about a year later, that was completed. And when you realize all the different tech that we had to bring into play, which is how do you pay for it? How do you keep the customer communicated? And then how do you put that on the schedule? Or how do you keep the customer informed throughout that process? And we were a little bit ahead of the world at that time, because now, now when you do it, you can have it on your dashboard. A light comes on in the car and you can talk to the car and the car can talk to you. 
But that led us to doing pickup and delivery, communicating with our pickup and delivery service. And like I said, we were open 24 hours a day. And so you, you can have your car picked up after work, serviced overnight while you're sleeping and put back in your driveway before you wake up in the morning. And give us some more numbers on that. Tell us a bit more about just like, you know, how it's impacted your profitability, your sales well, numbers, I, everything. You know, I seldom talk about the profitability of the dealership, but I, I can say that we've had 200 plus thousand transactions since 2017. And the uh, gross profit on that's been over uh, $60 million in gross. The average repair order is double what it is if you come to the store. So all these people that are hesitant to do online transactions, the average repair order in the store is about $250. When we do a transaction where we pick up the car, it's over $500. And that's not because we're charging more. But Yoshi, the learning lessons, the lessons for us have been so great. When you come into the store, let's say you have an oil change, you wait online 25 minutes, God forbid, but you wait online 25 minutes, we write you up, you sit down in the lobby, you wait a half an hour, we get your car in. So you're into this project for about a half an hour, an hour. And now we, we get your car up on the lift and we notice legitimately you need front brakes. And you're sitting in the lobby and we say, Yossi, you need front brakes. We have two questions. What are they? How much is it going to cost me? How long is it going to take? Correct. And I've spoken in Sweden, <laughs> I've spoken in Denmark, I've spoken all over. And where we are, same two questions. And you're not going to like either answer. It's, you know, you're not going to like either answer. But when we've picked up the car, and you're not worried about the time anymore. The time is no longer a consideration. And so we're getting a lot of that work that needs to be done that the customers would say, hey, you know what? I can't, no, I got to go. I got to go. I'll do it someplace else. I'll do it some other time. And what ends up happening, we're losing that business to the independent. My competition is not Hillside Honda. My competition is not Bay Ridge Honda. We thought that was a competition, right? We took a look at a heat map and we looked in, in the New York metro area and there were six Honda dealers within 10 miles, six. And we thought that was the competition. There were 17,000 New York State inspection stickers, uh, stations, 17,000 within 15 miles. It's the 17,000 independents that were eating our lunch. They get 80% of the service business. So when, in this case, when I say to you, you need breaks, you say to me, you know what, I, I, I'll get back to you. You leave. You drop the car off when you're good and ready, or you have the, you know, your family member drop the car off at the local gas station to get that done. Not because they're better, they're just proximate. You don't have the time to sit in my store to get that work done. So we're, we're getting that work that we weren't getting before. So if you make better use of the customer's time, uh, they'll reward you by giving the business to you, which is a really great finding that was under our nose the whole time that we just didn't understand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an example of something that in concept is so simple. Clearly, it's not simple to execute, but it's that's a true value add, right, for a consumer, for anyone. And we all value our time so much nowadays that it makes total sense. It, time is more valuable than money for the first time in history. Time is more valuable than money. And, and then you see the examples over and over again. You look at Amazon, look at the business, look at the growth they've had, and it's not the least expensive price. It's not the least expensive. It's just, they just drop it off at your front door. My wife is British. When, when she first moved to the United States of America 25 years ago, thereabouts, Amazon just started out. And she was somewhat unsure of where to go shopping. And so she started shopping online. And I've watched over the years the holiday shopping 
during the holidays. Increasingly go to Amazon. <laughs> All right. And it just, just it was just insane where you couldn't get into the house with the boxes. And I guess that was replicated. They just made it too darn easy for people to do business. And so I, I think that's the lesson, right? If you make it easy for people to do business, they'll do a lot more business with you. Speaking of sales, tell me, how do you set your goals? Tell us about, like again, more numbers. How do you set your store goals? And whatever you can share, what are your goals? Yeah, it's it's global domination. Nothing short of that. Now, we're, we're looking to beat ourselves. We want to be number one in everything that Honda and Acura measures that's good. Number one in customer satisfaction. Number one in gross margin. Number one in volume. Number one in, in, in sales growth, sales effectiveness. You know, you, you go down everything that they measure uh, that's good. We want to be number one in. And certified sales, new car sales, customer satisfaction. You know, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And sometimes we, we will hit the customer satisfaction, the president's award, precision team, which they always said would be impossible for us as a Metro dealer. We got that and some of the other things fell off. But we're putting together the right team now to get all of those things done. My new store up at White Plains, man, it's a struggle. I mean, you own the store and, and you think that's going to make things uh, easy and you find... You know, it's not, it's not what, quite what's easy. the hardest part managing from a distance it's 30 miles away and you know i i would love to live in the store but my obligations were parrot i can't do it you know i i'm a, a partner here i own that store with two associates i i can't this store is too big and if i don't pay attention to the paragon stores they'll get away from you uh, so I'm, I'm managing that from a, a distance but i do have an associate that's going to be joining me up there in a role as general manager. And I'm excited about that because that gentleman and I have run together. He worked at Paragon for many years. And I'm happy to say, I think he's joining me tomorrow at full time there. And uh, that's the solution. You know, I'd say it's like, uh, I'm a quarterback and he's my wide receiver. I could throw the ball full speed. And he got, you know, I just call the play I, and, and he'll get there. Yeah, the ball will get there just as he gets there. We know the playbook and, and he'll add, uh, he knows the drill. He knows what I want. He, and he, uh, you know, we're looking at this as a, a good first step to doing many great things together. So I like to think of it as I planted a seed, a tree grew, the tree grew, gave me some shade, and now I'm going to get some to eat some of the fruit from that tree. And, and he's going to enjoy some of that too. I love to hear it. So I'm, I'm a curious guy. I want to know some more numbers here. So whatever you can share with us, right? So, I mean, let's just start high level, right? Units per year. I mean, revenues, right? Between units and service, like what can you share there? You know, we're, we're, I'm targeting a billion dollars in sales. And so that's between Honda, Acura, the total group combined, right? Yeah. And, and give yourself a return on sales, whatever makes you feel good. And that's, that's the number. Got it. And then when it comes to profitability of used versus new, do you, again, I love this question that I heard recently at NADA, but do you view yourself as a new car dealer that sells used cars or a used car dealer that sells new cars? I view myself as a dealer that sits on a stool and that stool has three legs. And I started out my career as a one-legged stool. I was told I was one of the most profitable new car Honda dealers in the country, that one department. But I was a one-legged stool. And then a guy that worked for Mr. Singer, when he made me a partner, 
The guy went to Mr. Singer and said, you should have never done that because Ben Stock doesn't know used cars. And I won't mention that guy's name. But when he said that to my partner, my partner told me that. He said, that guy said, I "I want him out of here. And he said, nope. He said, nope, you don't do that. You'd rather him be jealous of you than feel sorry for you. I want him out of here. I said, he said, nope, don't do it. I just wanted you to know. And instead of getting him out of there, I just got good at used cars. And so now I'm a two-legged stool. But I stunk at fixed ops. And then a couple of years later, I realized that fixed ops is just another sales department. And I started to get better at fixed ops. I'm still not great at it, but I'm getting good at it. And so I think that the those departments are, are so intertwined in feeding each other. I, I like to see each of those departments contributing equally to the bottom line at the store. So 2 million, 2 million, 2 million, 3 million, 3 million, 3 million, 4 million, 4 million, 4 million in gross per month. Those are the numbers I'm looking at. You're also the number one certified Honda store in the world, right? So tell us about that, right? And you mentioned trade cycle time, right? You want to get people to trade their cars in faster, but how do you strategically acquire all that inventory? I'll give you a funny story. So um, I, I, there was a uh, Honda breakout session at the Honda National Meeting, and they're, they're launching this certified program. And at the time, I wanted to get a Honda dealership, another Honda dealership. And Mr. Singer said, you know, um, uh, he gave me the Ben Franklin list, took out the yellow legal path, and made a list down here. And he, t- and, and he told me, you know, you've got to get working capital. I said, what's that? And he goes, you know, we need working capital, the blue sky. Uh, and, and he got to the bottom of the list, and it was nearly $20 million. And I'm a young guy at the time. And he said, at what level are you ready to participate? And I think I had $200,000, which I guess would make me a 1% partner. And he said, listen, let's not do that at this time. And I was a little frustrated, but I, you know, I get it. I go to this Honda meeting and they're talking about the certified used car department. It's a franchise within a franchise. And they said, you don't need factory approval. You don't need any key money. And I, I, so I came back from that meeting. I was probably like one of 40 people that were attending that meeting that particular year. It was a breakout session. You know, there's 2,000 dealers at the meeting, but back then things were great for Honda. Everyone after the major meeting went out to the bar. And I'm one of 40, and I came back and said, hey, let's get into certified. I told Sam Delenti, the, the zone manager at the time, I said, I'm going to be the number one certified dealer. I said, well, last year you, d- you delivered 12. <laughs> I said, Sam, trust me, I'm going to be the number one certified dealer. And we started focusing on that. We set a target to do 100 certified in, in a month. And sure enough, we got 100. And I immediately, Yossi, look, God, hand to God, I set the goal to do 200. And then we got to 200. And we set the goal to do 300. And, and really just understanding of taking those customers new and renewing and renewing and renewing. And I, I'd say we flattened out a little bit now with COVID and everything else, but we're back on the climb now, back on, on the climb. We, we've we, we leveled off at about 3,000 certified used cars a year on the Honda side. But the focus this year will be getting back to those big numbers, 4,000 certified used cars. But what a, what a wonderful franchise within a franchise we were able to develop. And for a couple of years there, uh, we were the number one certified dealer in the nation, all brands. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty cool. And I got some award from Dale Pollock. And Dale, of course, he always had his statistics and he said, Brian started out and he told the story about, you know, my not being really good at used cars. And he said, and since then he had the number, it was like you know, 15,000 certified. <laughs> <laughs> and 
chips on shoulders for chips in pockets. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Dale is a very special mentor to me and a friend, Dale Pollock. He's one of those heroes in the car business. Real hero. Yeah. Yeah, Dale's a legend. I get his blog delivered to my email. Check that out all the time. It's really insightful. And someone that should come on the podcast and we should bring him on. Yeah, you should. You know, I went, interestingly enough, I, I took the, I was I was a, a big runner up until about a year ago. I lost most of the college in my knee, but I was a big runner and I invited Dale to go running in Central Park. And he wanted to chicken out the last minute. He said, no, it's dangerous. I could get hurt. I could hurt somebody. I said, Dale, let's go running. And I took Dale for a four mile run in the park. It was euphoric for both of us, you know, and I never wanted to touch Dale. I didn't want him to feel that there was a handicap. And, and so I would, I would say left, right, left, right, as we were running. And we ran, ran around the park. At some point, there's a horse and carriage coming towards us. There's a horse and carriage. You I'm better telling, touch him now. <laughs> telling him right, 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 and moves to the right. And I go, oh, my God. He goes, that was close, wasn't it? I go, yeah, how could you tell? He goes, I think I could smell the horse's fucking breath. And I go, yeah. I mean, it was close, right? And and so because of that, Dale invited me to go skiing with him. Skiing in Aspen. And he said, I want you to have my back. And he went with another gentleman, Eric Weinemeyer, who was also blind. And they had guides. And I, I skied behind Eric and Dale. And I made sure that nobody ran into them. And the, these guys skied down some pretty darn huge mountains in, uh, in Aspen, as I recall. And so, I mean, th these are people that are just, I mean, the people that I've been blessed to meet in this business and this, and what do I do? I sell a couple of cars. But th these guys are heroes, true heroes. Well said. Brian, before we zoom out and, you know, we wrap up, I want to ask you, you know, you see clearly a high volume of sales, service, use new on a daily basis, give us some insight. What are you seeing right now? Where, where is the market headed, right? Give us, generally speaking, where is the market headed today? Well, I think there's some storm clouds out there. I think there's going to be some turbulence. We're not, uh, there's uh, a lot of instability. The market loves stability, whether it be a stock market, whether it be a, a car market. And we don't have that right now. We've got some difficulties in the Middle East. We've got political instability here. We've got some inflation going on. I keep hearing the notion that we're getting back to normal uh, or back to 2019. And I think a lot of people are forgetting that in 2019, interest rates were 2 3%, now they're 7 8%, And so when you're holding on to inventory, that cost right now, depending on the size of your store, could be several hundred thousand dollars in flooring costs. And, and uh, we're keenly aware of that as a high volume uh, dealership. So churn is going to be extremely important and inventory management is going to be extremely important. We, it, I, I wanted to believe that we're going to see interest rates reduced as we get closer to the election. That hasn't happened yet. So uh, it, it'll be interesting going in. The BEV, going from the ice age to the BEV age, as BEVs are being shoved down our throats, you know, there's, there's, that's another little bit of a wild card for those of us in ZEV states. How do we handle that? And how do we play that politically the right way? You, you want to advise the government that the customers aren't necessarily receiving these the way you'd like them to receive them without being seen as an obstructionist. Because, you know, the last thing we want is for the states to push for direct-to-consumer laws, right? Saying, hey, these pesky dealers, they're the ones 
blocking this. And, 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 and so let's just circumvent the dealers. We certainly don't want that. We, we, we want the OEMs and the, uh, the dealers to advise the local municipalities that our customers are struggling with infrastructure problems. The dealers are, structure, are struggling with infrastructure problems. And if you want more adaptation towards BEV, we've all got to work together to make it easier for people who do buy BEVs to have the security that they need uh, that they can have safe and reliable transportation. And I think safe and reliable transportation is what we should have for everybody. And, and so I, I have some questions about the affordability factor of BEV vehicles for people that don't have large income. And I think transportation equals freedom. And so I want to make sure that everybody can participate in the BEV future. So I think that those are some difficulties that we have to deal with as we go forward. I did hear something about the administration potentially pumping the brakes on BEV to extend some of the lines. I think that's a politically good move, and I think it's a, a, a thoughtful move uh, because I, I think they, they moved a little bit quickly. You know, I, I like clean air, uh, you like clean air, but we, we've got to do this at a pace that makes sense. So I think the fact that they're considering it, I think that's a very good move. What about consumer health, right? What are you seeing on that end when it comes to negative equity, terms of loans? What are you seeing there? You know, in terms of loans, I think the manufacturers are advised strongly to push towards leasing and incentivize leasing. I think many of the finance companies are listening to dealers who are asking for a suicide pill, a cyanide pill, 84-month loans, 96-month loans. And I, I think that, you know, I, I said at an accurate National Dealer Advisory Board meeting, when you recommend or when you offer an 84-month term, you should hand the customer, uh, take the customer outside, hand them the keys to the car and shoot them in the back of the head because you're never going to see them again. You might as well just shoot them in the back of the head. They looked at me like I was crazy. I said, well, do, do, use your data. I don't have the data you do. What's the renewal on a customer who leased the car for 36 months and then leased again? What's the renewal rate? It's over 50%. Give me the renewal rate on somebody who was in an 84-month loan. It's like 16%, 15 14%. So tell me, which would you rather support with subvention? 36-month loan or lease where you can get the customer back every 25 months or 26 months because they'll term early, and you'll get the two cars sold and two trades, which is four transactions, or you've got a 17% shot of renewing a customer in five years. Well, you, you're going to sell five cars, you're going to sell five cars in, in 36 months or 48 months, or you're going to sell two cars in uh, 72 months. Do the math. Do the math. And so, you know, I, I do think we, we've got to understand the math a little bit better. And the math is that the trade cycle management that Ford set up with red carpet leasing was a great program. It failed because Ford couldn't handle at the time the residual. That doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that if we have an affordability problem facing us, then leasing is the savior. Leasing is the salvation. Well said. Do you think there is any bigger issue facing the industry and consumers than affordability right now? No, no, I, I, you know, I think that affordability is the issue. And I think, you know, look, look for leasing to enter used cars in a big way. I think that's a, a really great opportunity Interesting. for us. I think that's, 
you know, all the nonsense. I mean, there's, there isn't really any other option at this point. I mean, if people can't afford them, you got to put them on the road some one way or another. Every, you, everybody's driving a monthly payment, you know, so get the payment down. You know, what's, what's the difference? New, used, everybody's driving a used car. So make, make it, I buy transportation. We all consume it in, in, in minor bites, right? Whether it be an Uber and I'm buying just the lift, uh, just a ride, or, or, or it's a lease and I'm buying it for, uh, for a month, or or I'm buying it long term. When you fly to, let's say, to California, do you? When's the last time you flew to California and you asked them how much is a plane? You don't ask how much is the plane. It doesn't matter. You want to know how much is it going to cost you to go from New York to L.A. You're not asking how much is the plane. So what difference does it make? And if you ask them and they said the plane's $100 million, you say, oh, I can't afford that. But if you want to fly, it's $600. And it's the same thing. If, if you can sell the customer car, uh, transportation, you can make that affordable on a monthly basis, then you're going to sell a lot more cars. It's affordability for transportation. And I'm in the transportation business. I'm not in the leasing business. I'm not in the selling business. I'm in the transportation business. I want to make it easier for people to consume transportation whenever, wherever, and however they want to consume it. And, and stop trying to force people to do it one way or, or, or another. I mean, that, that's, that's So do, are, are you offering used car leasing right now? Absolutely. 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 A hundred percent. What programs are you using for that? American Honda and Acura are doing it. And it's a, it's a great program. American Honda, I think, is really, they, they've got it figured out and very few dealers are taking advantage of it. You know, again, and, and I'm going to just add, answer the why question because most of the finance departments of dealerships are running the dealerships. Most dealers don't run their dealerships. The finance departments do. And they, they, the finance departments can't make the same money. They think they can't make the same money on a lease that they can they on They think the they can't make. That's right. They think so. So therefore, they will. It's oh, it always comes down to an incentive issue. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so they'll do what's bad for the dealership. They'll put them in an eighty-four month loan as opposed to putting the customer in a thirty-six month lease on a used car and make it easy for the customer to buy customer cars from them over and over and over and over again. They'll put them in an eighty-four month loan and never see the customer again. How did you solve that incentive problem? I run my store. Simple, simple as that. You, you know, hey, I'll give you. You know, you know how do you that? fix your incentive problem? I run my fucking store. That's it. Man. Hey, I got, I got that from Paul Nygaard, right? I run, I got that from Paul Nygaard, who runs Larry H. Miller Group, where he did. And I said, Paul, how do you do it? How you, you manage seventy-one stores? And I, you know, I, I pull my hair out with three stores. And he said, you know, he's I hire good people. I train them. I said, yeah, me too. What's the real answer? He goes, well, I reserve the right to manage my business. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I took out a business card. I swear to. God, I wrote it down. I reserve the right to manage my business. He said, Brian, if the if the bank I have heard that line. If, if the bank comes to take your store, they're taking it from you, not from your finance manager, not from your sales manager, taking it from you. And so I wrote that down. I reserve the right to manage my business. And so when a finance guy said, so what I did, anything over 60 months, the FNI guys get half commission. I cut the commission mm. in months. There you go, problem baby. Solved, problem solved. And if you're saying they won't take the car unless it's 72 months, okay, we're both going to give a little then because that's the only way they can do it. And watch how quickly they go to the 60 month instead of 72. Watch how quickly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> these guys, millionaire finance guys driving around in their Ferraris and telling us that they can't sell the guy a 60 month contract. Get out of here. Gotta love it. Brian, dude, this has been awesome. 
give me some your outlook on tech in the industry for the next you know five years AI right is this real is this Fugazi like what, what's the deal no 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 tech AI is real uh, it's it's scary it's great you know right use it of course to write descriptions on your cars right now the best thing you can do is say you know you give me an SEO SEM relevant text on a 2018 BMW 523i that'll reach the mass most amount of people within 100 miles of the zip code 11377 and watch it go. It's there and there's a thousand different applications. I want to reach X amount of people for this particular car in a market. Boom. I want to find this employee. I, I use it for simple things. I, I, I will dictate a memo and then I'll just put make this better. And, you know, yep. so there's, there's so many yeah. different. I do that I, one too. Yeah. And we're fixed grammar, fixed grammar. Yeah. We're, we're just scratching the surface, right? I, we don't know what we're doing. And, and I, I do intend to, to take a college course at NYU on the proper application of this stuff. Cause it's, it, it's, it's a whole nother world out there. What jobs are most at risk when you think about the dealership? Any? No, I don't th they're going to change, right? They're not at risk. It's just consolidation. Using in the office to mitigate risk, you know, certainly run run titles, searches on, on things through AI. I think I love it. You're thinking the wrong way. I think you know, I, I, I not at risk. I think how do we use it to make our, ourselves better? How do we how do we incorporate it to to reduce risk and increase efficiencies? You know, that, we should never look at it as, as something to be afraid of. But but something to really help us to gain more customers. You know, I I, I want to you know, and again, the better the query, the the better the outcome. How do we make ourselves more effective in the marketplace? And and simply by asking for better better queries. We're in for an interesting an interesting ride at the pace that it's involving. It, I mean, it's been unbelievable. Now you see now they have you know Sora. You can just generate videos. It really has become unbelievable. Yeah. I want to wrap up with with a general question. You know, does does anything keep you up at night at this point? Everything. What keeps you up at night? Everything. I, I'm insecure about everything. Uh, the the legislation that the they're going to go direct to consumer. The Chinese are coming. The Chinese are coming. The Chinese are coming. Having China have an edge on EVs. Uh, they've got the raw materials that they're going to come in and destroy the market. I saw golf carts that we sell golf carts, electric golf carts for fifteen thousand dollars, and they they had a a show, an EV show. For golf carts that they had Chinese golf carts that were forty forty nine ninety five that was spectacular a third of the price. What if they did that with cars? You know the direct to consumer model that the dealers are going to take a hard line stance on some of these things, saying the EVs aren't selling, and states like New York are going to say, hey, we're going to allow direct to consumers, and the manufacturers are going to shake their head, no, we don't like this, but they're going to be happy about it, and the destruction of the franchise laws. And the OK Corral. Now, I, I think that when that happens, the OEMs will sell less cars and they'll go back to the franchise model as Musk is going towards a franchise model. But in the, in, there'll be a bloodbath in the, in the meantime. You know, so I think about those things. You know, investing at, at my age, I'm 63, and investing millions of dollars in a new dealership and with all the change going on. So I think all good entrepreneurs are a little insecure, right? At all times, you're always looking over your shoulder for what can, well, who's going to steal your cheese? And Only the it. paranoid survive. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think it's healthy. Yeah, it's a great book. So, yeah. Uh, so I'm paranoid. <laughs> My and, man. And, and again, pain, uncertainty, 
and constant work. You, you, you can't avoid those three. You know, one thing I did forget to ask you is about just your social media presence. I mean, where did this come about from? I do want to take one guess here, right? So tell me what you think about this. But the way I see it is like, you know, you're an entrepreneur, right? You've come up with all these great innovations and really done a lot of unique things in our industry. If I see it correctly, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but you sort of saw an opportunity on to make a bigger impact, to have a platform via social. In my entrepreneurial brain, that's an arbitrage that you took advantage of. Now, I want to hear the real answer, but go ahead. No, it's, you know, I'm just being real. And I think any of us being authentic, I think that's what resonates. And I'm authentic, authentically bad or authentically good. But, you know, I, I, there's nothing that I say where I'm full of crap. It's that people will tell you that it's, that it's me for better or for worse. And that way I don't have to worry about what I say. Someone's not going to call me out on it. It, it, It's me. And again, I, I don't talk about specific numbers. The net profit of the dealerships, nobody's business, but my partners in the IRSs. Except on the CDG podcast. Yeah. uh, (laughs) My my wife doesn't know what I earn. You know, it's nobody's business. And if I told somebody what I earn, half the people would say, that's it. And the other half of people would say, oh my God, that's so much. And you say, you're never going to win. It's not about that. A buddy of mine that I work out with, we like to think that we're bringing other people along with us that we're encouraging other people. It's, I, I'm not going to be the fastest, the strongest or any of that, but, but we, we think we're, we're trying to get people to say, Hey, we're with you in this. And one of my favorite sayings is the shepherd has to smell like the sheep. And so many people in the car business, we get to management and they don't want to smell like the sheep, the salespeople. In fact, they learn to despise the sheep. And I think just the opposite, man. The sheep are my people. The salespeople are people. And so I want to show them I'm up early. I'm not on vacation. I, I was have, had breakfast with some of the executives at Acura this morning, and they said, I heard you don't like to fly internationally. What, what are you talking about? We never go on any of the trips because there's a trip to Belize or something. I go, did I win? They go, yeah, you won, but why aren't you going? I, said, I, I got a new store. It's a baby. I can't. And they go, hey, you got to start taking some of the fruits of your labor. So not not right now, not right now. This is wartime for for me in business. I got to be in the store, and the the, the shepherd's got to smell like the sheep. I can't be in Belize getting sun while while the business is a little shaky. That's the wrong message to my team. I got to be on the front line. That, that's how I see it, you know. So that's a hell of a way to end, my friend, Brian. Seriously, thank you for coming on. This has been so awesome. So great to meet you, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> to many more, to many more, my friend. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.